Hello, I'm William Bell with Fulfill Radio, a voice you can trust. Coming up next is the Living Body Broadcast. Stay tuned. Michael Sullivan is a graduate of Calvary Chapel Bible College. He has also majored in theology at the Master's College for two years. Mike is a co-author of a popular full preterist book, House Divided, Bridging the Gap in Reformed Eschatology, a preterist response to When Shall These Things Be? He has written several articles for preterist periodicals and websites. He is the owner of two preterist websites, www.treeoflifeministries.info and www.fullpreterism.com. Mike has been a full preterist for 21 years. And now, ladies and gentlemen, Fulfill Radio, a voice you can trust, presents to you the Living Body Broadcast with Michael Sullivan. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to the Living Body Show. I hope you had a good Christmas and and good New Year's, and I'm, I have William Bell online again. Hello, William. Hi, Michael. How are you? And Happy New Year to you and to your family and to all of our audience. Amen. Uh, it's been a couple weeks since the Living Body has been on due to uh, my work schedule, having to work on the holidays, um, but glad to be back, glad to have William back on the show. Last show, we had some technical difficulties, so we're going to review some, some of the things in uh, last week's show, and also get into uh, Matthew 24. But as you know, we have been going over what theologians have called the big three. That is Matthew 6, I'm sorry, Matthew 10, uh, verses 22 and 23, where the coming of the Son of Man takes place, uh, evangelism takes place, and the end and salvation takes place. And what is the coming of the Son of Man there? What is this persecution of some of the disciples dying and some of them living? And, of course, we looked at Daniel 7 particularly to to look at these themes and motifs, and we determined that this was uh, referring to AD 70. The second of the big three passages uh, is Matthew 16, verses 27 and 28, where Jesus teaches that he was about to come in the Father's glory, and he would read reward each man according to his works uh, with the angels and so forth, and that this would take place within some of those standing there, some of their lifetime. And that is where we are right now. We have uh, given a positive exegesis of Matthew 16, 27, 28, but tonight we're going to specifically deal with uh, critiquing uh, Sam Frost's article on Matthew 16, 27, and 28. I just have five brief points uh, I wanted to cover. And, of course, William and myself have already done articles on this, uh, but we also want to deal with it here on the show. Uh, William, in Sam's article, there's there's five points. And once we get into where his article leads, which is uh, Revelation 5, I'm going to let you develop some things that um, you've been studying and that's on your heart. Uh, but there are five points I just wanted to cover regarding Sam's article. 
uh, some things that are remaining that I haven't covered. Uh, the first is that Sam cherry picks John Calvin, and and Sam consistently accuses uh, full preterists <clears throat> and me particularly of cherry picking uh, various commentators, and yet it's interesting that I find he's he's doing this very thing. He says this: "It is this that is Matthew sixteen twenty eight. He says, "Is this a single event? Would it be a series of events?" Would it be an event with an inaugural consideration that is in Greek, ingressive? For example, and here it is, Calvin commented, quote, By the coming of the kingdom of God, we are to understand the manifestation of heavenly glory, which Christ began to make at his resurrection, <clears throat> which he afterwards made more fully by sending the Holy Spirit and by the performance of miracles. For by those beginnings he gave his people a taste of the newness of the heavenly life when they perceived by certain and undoubted proofs that he was sitting at the right hand of the Father. Then Sam continues, Taken all together, Calvin understood that these several events, resurrection, ascension, sending of the Spirit, miracles of the apostles, etc., represents the ways in which the kingdom of God came with power. The coming of the Son of Man in his kingdom. In other words, eighty seventy is not even confirmed in consideration here. Well, William, what I found interesting, and I already knew this, but I wanted to confirm it, and so I went back and I read Calvin. Um, it's interesting that Sam wants to quote Calvin on Matthew 16, verse 28, but he does not quote him on verse 27, in which Calvin clearly uh, stated that that passage was the second and final coming of Christ. He also takes Matthew 24, verse 30 and 31 as the final second coming of Christ. Matthew 25, 31 as the second and final coming of Christ. Um, so it, Calvin makes these same connections that full preterists do, and yet Sam decides he's not going to address uh, the rest of what Calvin has to say. And, and then the second point, William, he... He accuses full preterists as having this left behindism. That is, you know, the popular dispensational Tim LaHaye, Thomas Ice theology. When we connect passages together, and yet uh, it's it's not left behindism that connects these passages. It's it's Calvin himself. It's reformed. It's reformed theology that does this. It's not. Uh, just uh, full preterism and dispensationalism. It's it's a it's a very um, bad misrepresent, re, misrepresentation, and it's not a very scholarly approach uh, to this. And I just wanted to get your thoughts on on this first point. Well, Michael, I think you're correct. You know, when I read his comments on Calvin's commentary, and then after going back and looking at Calvin's actual wording to find out that he, as you mentioned a moment ago, took the position that Matthew 16, 27 and Matthew 24 were already, uh, or, or rather related to the judgment. And in fact, you know, Calvin went so far as to say that all of these things had been fulfilled within 50 years. So he even took a full preterist view on these events 
uh, in his commentary, in his uh, exegesis of them, and at the same time, you know, he tried to take the uh, dualistic position that every generation would basically witness some of these things. But the, the interesting thing there, as you're pointing out, is that Frost didn't mention any of that commentary from Calvin that suggested these future events or taking these events as the second coming in Matthew 16, 27, in that close, uh, inseparable context of chapter 16, nor did he mention that Matthew 24, which is pretty much you know, none disputed by anyone who's informed on the subject of eschatology, that it's a, you know, first century 70 AD context, and yet taking that as the second coming. So that created some really, really sticky or thorny issues for uh, the commentary that Frost was giving on this, and it makes it questionable, very questionable, that he would omit this and cite Calvin pretty much as an authority for where he was going, and at the same time didn't quite fully pull in all of these uh, comments that Calvin made on this topic. Yeah, that and also, as you alluded to, and I think we discussed in a previous show, Jesus' phrase in verse 28 where he begins, Verily I say unto you, uh, as we noted, uh, you know, I think it was uh, Don Preston a long time ago there, he had a little pink booklet, um, Can You Believe Jesus Said? said this or something like that and you know he developed this that you know this this phrase is roughly used some 90 times by jesus and every time well in the booklet he said uh, every time except two times um he thought that there were two times where it may uh represent a a change of subject but uh i went to uh, james montgomery boyce and our also arthur pink's commentary on gospel of john and and showed that uh Every time Jesus uses, verily I say unto you, it always, without exception, uh, means uh, not a change of subject matter, but an emphasis of what has gone before. And I know Don has changed also his position to where every time this phrase is used, it's emphasizing what has gone before. And you know, if Sam Frost is going to have any kind of credibility uh with full preterists as this alleged expert in uh leading full preterists out of uh, our view our heresy he's going to have to deal with our exegetical arguments and yet sam knows this is a key fundamental exegetical argument of full preterism when we develop this verily i say unto you and uh william it was just nowhere nowhere in sam's article uh calvin didn't deal with it um and Frost knows the arguments there, and he didn't touch on it. And I think uh, one of the reasons he didn't touch on it is because I think he's going to say, well, yeah, the coming of the Son of Man in verse 27 and the coming of the Son of Man in verse 28 are the same thing. It's just a uh, an unfolding of the kingdom. It, it is his ascension, or it is his resurrection. It is his ascension. It is him coming on Pentecost. It is possibly him coming in AD 70. It is him possibly coming at the end of time. Well, no, not the end of time. He would, probably, he would be possibly AD 70. And, of course, this is the view of uh, Herman Ritterboss and other amillennials have jumped on this bandwagon. But... For Frost, the problem still remains. He has not dealt with verily I say unto you. So 
uh, I just find that that rather peculiar and and deceptive to not really handle that and address how we uh, develop that. Well, that's true. I mean, if you're going to respond to the uh, arguments that are presented, you know, to uh, counter the things that have been stated, it would be fair to address them as they are stated rather than to uh, skirt around them. And, of course, you know, this issue, you know, as far as I'm concerned, and I'm sure it's the same with you, you know, is not about Sam Frost. You know, this is about what the Bible says. It's about what the text says. And so anyone who would uh, propose to address them and ignore evidence such as what you just presented, and I do remember that uh, little track that Don Preston published, uh, that he wrote and published, stating these things and have seen uh, no one who's come forward that was able to dispute it or to refute it. And so for that reason, it should be one of the things that's addressed. It should be uh, one of those points that is so clearly laid out, in my opinion, since this is the uh, one of the main areas of, of contention or controversy, that something conclusive ought to be laid out and say, you know, this is why it is not uh, a, re a reference to anything that could be related to the full preterist view. But what keeps happening, Michael, is that every time we find these objections being raised, the evidence is always to the contrary. The evidence is always leaning in the favor of the full preterist view. And I guess that's what's so troubling about this whole process when – you know, some believe that they have found, if you please, the key to uh, refute it or to um, show that it has no credibility. Yeah, amen. All right, let's deal with a couple other points. I'm just going to read from his article. He says, uh, we must ask, though, more questions. What is meant by rewarding each person according to his deeds? Surely, contest the hyperpreterist, this, this is an end-time event. And here he would be able to appeal to a usual, modern, Christian, cultural way of understanding this expression inundated with left-behind popularizations. This assumes, however, that the cultural understanding is the biblical understanding, and we must always be careful not to reread our culture back into the text. The Christian has normally heard, popularly, that the rewards of the saints that happens only once. Only at one time, at the end of the world in the final judgment, this is supposedly supported by appealing to Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15, where we find indeed, quote, they were judged, each man, according to his works. Not quite the same phrase as rewarded. Then on top of this, it is assumed that this event in Revelation is the same event as spoken of here, since as I have already pointed out, the same language is used. But to jump from Matthew to Revelation based on a string of words, then to say they must be talking about the same thing, is a logical leap with several steps, several steps missing. That's what the hyperpreterists do a lot, take huge hurdles. All right, unquote. I've got a couple things to say about this. Uh, again, the first thing to say is that our view of Matthew 16 – 27, and Calvin's view, and the Reformed view, 
uh, is that this is the second and final coming, and that it is parallel to Revelation 20, 11 verses uh, through 15, and also Revelation 22, uh, verses 10 and 12. This is where your re- your cross-references will go. This is where the majority of your Reformed commentaries, and of course, one of the steps Sam tells us to take is to address the commentaries in w- when we're studying this passage. But when we do, we don't find Sam's view of Matthew 16, 27 in, uh, you know, taking place. We see uh, this being the second coming. That's the first point, and that that is not left behind popularization, folks. That is just what the Reformed uh, view really is, the the majority Reformed view. And Sam is not dealing with that, and Sam is trying to demonize full preterism by putting it on par with dispensationalism. And and folks, I'm just going to be honest with you, that's just deception, and scholarly, that is just flat-out wrong okay that's the first point uh the second point is that he says that we we skip hermeneutical steps he claims that we jump from uh the similar language of matthew 16 27 28 into revelation 20 and into revelation 22 but william sam jumps from this passage to revelation chapter (laughs) five so you know i and and the fact is, William, in in my article on this passage, and in our book, which Sam claims he's a co-author of, um, I don't jump. I, I develop this passage within Jesus' teaching, within Matthew's gospel, and then I'll go to Revelation. Uh, so Sam is just so far off the mark. He He's saying things that just simply are not true. And... Uh, the next point uh, I want to cover, and then I'm going to let you loose in Revelation 5, because this is where he wants to go. Uh, the next point is this misrepresent, mis- misrepresentation, William, uh, when he says this. He says, the question we must ask is, or taken into consideration is, at the time, what would the disciples have heard? Would they have heard end of the world? Would they have heard imminent judgment? Secondly, and more importantly, what did Jesus mean? Was he foretelling an imminent one and only one judgment to end all future judgments? That is, after this one, there will be no others. Then he goes on, that the destruction of Jerusalem may be in view here can and has been argued by many esteemed Bible scholars. However, to limit this, the one and only end all be all, of the coming reign of Messiah over history, for which he has been doing for the last 2,000 years, is too much to bear with the texts. Now, wait a second, William. Do full preterists teach that this was the end all, the only time God judges people in history? Now, it clearly it was a unique one-time event in which Hades was... You know, those souls in Hades were emptied and, and so forth. But what about, you know, Hebrews 9.27? You know, it's appointed for man to die once and then the judgment. Uh, this seems to be a misrepresentation of, of full preterism. Yeah, well, I you know, I've always understood the gospel to be 
God's standard of righteousness. And if this is God's standard of righteousness, then we have to look at anything that is opposite to that in terms of you know any uh, seeking of justification by man to be uh, the very opposite of that, to be uh, that which falls under the uh, what I would fall under judgment and and condemnation, and so um, you know whatever marks out and um, delineates the righteousness of God automatically would exclude from that those things that uh, would be the opposite to that. You know when you look at passages, uh, Mike, for example, in uh, Revelation twenty one, uh, twenty six, and 27, I believe it is, as well as uh, Revelation 22, uh, there's a clear delineation between those who are in the city as opposed to those who are outside of the city. Well, what determines that? In my understanding, in my opinion, uh, what determines that would determines that would be the righteous judgment of God, the fact that one has to do with those who keep the commandments of God in the sense that they are uh, obedient to the gospel of Christ, which is the righteousness of God, and the way he makes man righteous, as opposed to those who refuse to be uh, brought under submission uh, to that. And, of course, that would automatically be uh, God's judgment. And in Isaiah chapter 9, for example, the text says, of the increase of his government, there will be hmm. no end. And he says to establish it with uh judgment and justice forever and so i know that some will uh object to that context but here's the bible saying of the increase of his government there is no end so i don't think that we could ever bring an end to the righteous standard of god that he's placed uh in the earth and and it's a uh, even the jews you know you were talking about uh the concept of you know having this mindset of this all consummating end the Jews didn't understand any end from that perspective. You know, they even said on one occasion when Jesus was talking about his death, they said, what do you mean? Uh, the law says that when Messiah comes, he abides forever. They had no concept of the end of the world. They had no concept of the end. They didn't even think that he was supposed to die. Uh, so, um, and, and that's just not, you know, they said we've heard out of the law. So from everything that their scriptures taught, they understood a continuity of these things rather than an end of these things. Now, granted, we admit they didn't quite understand that their covenant would come to an end, but they did understand uh, some of the uh, eternal things about the reign and the nature of the Messiah. Yeah, and, and Sam knows better, William, to say that we believe that, quote, the coming reign of Messiah over history ended in AD 70. Come on. we Sam never taught this as, quote, unquote, a full preterist. And we never – we do not teach that Christ's reign over history ended in AD 70. Again, it's this uh, pigeonholing. It's, it's this – trying to push full preterism into, quote, hyper-preterism, where there is no salvation after AD 70. It's just, it's logically impossible if you're a full preterist to believe that. And, you know, this is another thing he's saying, that if you believe that the last days ended in AD 70, well, then there can be no salvation. There can be, that the Holy Spirit's work in saving people after AD 70 has to have ceased. And yet, uh, his own publishers, William, uh, Gary DeMar, 
And one of the researchers there, uh, Joel McDermott, believes that the last days ended in AD 70. They believe that the New Testament's phrase, the last days, in every case uh, refers to AD 70, the end of the Old Covenant age. And Sam Frost calls this a, a full preterist scheme that the last days ended in AD 70. He tries to push us all into this hyper-preterism, and yet his own partial preterist publisher <laughs> and his own uh, colleagues uh, uh, teach that the last days ended. So uh, this is – Sam knows this is a misrepresentation. He knows that we believe that, say, for example, in 1 Corinthians 15, that this is Christ's pre-parousia reign – uh, where he's reigning and, and, and when the parousia comes and when the end takes place, um, you know, it's referring to AD 70, but that is not the end of his reign. And so, again, I just, I hate to use the word deception because it, it carries a lot of, you know, a lot of weight, but I, at the very least, I have to say that this is not scholarly. And it's it's a very very false misrepresentation of of full preterism. And since Sam, I, I'm looking at his previous writings, I I have a hard time shaking that that he's just being deceptive. He's just not representing us correctly. Well, you know, you hesitate to say those things, or you hesitate to you know want to believe them. Um, but, you know, the, the evidence is there in terms of what preterists believe. And I think you made a very good point a moment ago. As far as I know, I never heard that taught by Sam when he was a full preterist. Exactly. Um, and so how did it become the doctrine of full preterism afterwards? Um, <laughs> you know, does it do so by our advocating that? Or does it do so by someone telling us this is what what we believe exactly. when we are we are stating these things and they, that has been established for for the longest time? I mean, I've been at this over thirty years and I've not known those who take the full preterist view to uh, hold to such a uh, you know such an opinion as that. Amen. Amen. Okay, now we're going to get into where Sam's article leads everybody, and this is why I kind of want to let you loose. For a bit, and and some of the observations in your studies of Revelation five, and particularly the Old Testament echoes, uh, which are brought up. Uh, I'm going to quote Sam here. In Revelation five, we have all the elements of the Son of Man, quote unquote, coming into His kingdom, which, as is recognized by all, is the ascension scene. He came, chapter five, verse seven, and received all power and authority, verses nine and ten. He purchased the redeemed, made them a kingdom and priests in order to serve God. This is certainly, quote, a blessing and a reward of salvation. With that, the saints reign on earth. Verse 11 continues, noting the presence of thousands upon ten, tens of thousands of angels. What is interesting here, and has been noted in the commentaries, is that this is largely in reference to Daniel 7, 10, and verses 13 and 14, where thousands upon ten thousands of angels attend to the coming scene of the Son of Man. And the saints came into possession of the rule or reign of God. That Revelation 5 is then making this the same scene can be argued 
and that Jesus is stating that some of those standing in the midst would be alive to witness his quote-unquote coming into power, dispensing his authority, quote-unquote rewarding, to his people. This would be with the angels encircling him. All right, now this is uh, definitely a big reach, um, but uh, I'm going to turn you loose and and ask you, William, how is how can Matthew 16 verses 27 and 28 uh, how can that be the ascension, and how can Revelation 5 be correlated to it? Well, <laughs> uh, you know, the, the teaching that. Matthew sixteen twenty seven and 28 refers to the ascension, goes way back before my days of, of preterism, actually, uh, all the way back into the time when I was an amillennialist and our form of fellowship. That's what um, was taught, uh, that the power, and this was the connection. The connection was um, the kingdom would come with power. Acts 1 says they would receive power after the Holy Spirit came upon them. And we see the church beginning in Acts 2, and therefore the kingdom came with power. And that was the simplicity of the argument. Um, after looking, however, at the context, which we've been talking about earlier, that Matthew sixteen twenty seven cannot be separated from verse 28. And as Calvin acknowledged, Matthew 16:27 is a second coming passage. That is the brass tacks of it as they say. So with that and with the you know impossibility of dividing from an exegetical point of view dividing verse 27 from 28. We have and and not only just 27 and 28 because we talk about that and and rarely do we back up even to the previous verses of Matthew chapter 16 that talk about, um, you know, one losing their life and gaining the whole world, et cetera, and what that context was all about. That context was about the persecution and uh, the afflictions that the saints would receive for their faith, uh, which did not take place, Michael, before Pentecost. Where would we find the saints to be persecuted to the extent that they are losing their life for following Christ before Pentecost. This is clearly uh, a context that speaks of what would take place, what would occur in the life of these disciples after they have begun to espouse Christianity. And it reflects the persecutions by the Jews upon them that was so many times mentioned in the Gospels um, through and through, and we see lived out in their everyday experiences in Acts, starting primarily in chapter 4, and then continuing on throughout the, the rest of the book and the rest of the epistles, and of course being climaxed in the book of Revelation. So this context of persecution cannot, and I say that both for the context of Matthew 16, as well as the context of Daniel 7, because there is clearly the persecution context in Daniel chapter 7, which which has to be taken in mind if we're talking about that. So anyone who wants to place Matthew 16, um, 24 through 27 or 28 into a Pentecost time frame, they've got to look at that whole context. They can't just pull verse 28 
and and claim that it is sitting out there, you know, isolated on an island. Mm. Um, I, I was looking at a book title just uh, maybe today or yesterday, and one of the things that it talked about was um, restoring book, chapter, and paragraph. You know, we generally say book, chapter, and verse, but it says book, chapter, and paragraph because a lot of times these verses have been severed from their main paragraph or contextual setting, and, and we don't get them all. So I think a person who's going to approach this text in the beginning ought to start even before verse 27 and pull the entire context in because that's exactly what's going on. And that's one of the reasons. It, it then makes logical sense that Jesus is talking about rewarding both the just and the unjust, if you please, uh, according to their works, because you had some who were persecuting who would be judged for their works, and those who were being persecuted who would be judged for theirs. So the context then makes more sense when you look at the broader, uh, the broader context of what's going on. Now that being said, to take as, um, as some of our all-millennial brethren do, uh, the concept of power, and I'm not saying all of them do, but I know in the Churches of Christ this, is what, this was their, their main sugar stick text and the way they tried to prove it, you know, proof text. But to take power from that perspective and say, okay, well, that's it, you know, doesn't truly give the text um, a fair shake because there is power associated with the coming of the Lord that needs to be uh, looked at in terms of this as well. Now, I can always acknowledge an, on, an already but not yet type of scenario, but one of the things that you see in the coming of the Lord is the exercise of his power in the complete uh, defeat and uh, destruction of his enemies. Now, that then begins to move us into this context of Revelation chapter 5. Let me just say, um, I thought it was rather interesting you know, you talked about cherry-picking Matthew chapter 5, I mean, uh, Matthew 16. Right. Well, I thought there was some cherry-picking going on with Revelation chapter 5. Amen. Trying to uh, take this passage and force it into a, a Pentecost time frame, and certainly into an exclusive Pentecost time frame. I want to, uh, Michael, um, for just a moment, and you feel free to you know, just jump in anywhere you want to. You know? Yeah, just to clarify, uh, not just Pentecost, it's the ascension and then the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It, when you say Pentecost, it's uh, when he says ascension and Pentecost, they're pretty much the same unfolding of the kingdom in his view. But okay, anyway. all right. All right. Okay, so in, in for example... I'm, I'm looking at the commentary on the New Testament of the Old, New Testament use of the Old Testament by uh, G.K. Beale and D.A. Carson, mm -hmm. and here's what they say on Revelation chapter five and verse one, just so we can get a, an idea of where uh, they tend to see the connection here. It says most interpreters have rightly identified the phrase of five one B, a scroll or book written on the front and back, as evoking the image of Ezekiel two nine B through ten. John's scroll, like Ezekiel's, will contain lamentations, mourning, and woe. Now that kind of puts us back into that pre verse twenty seven context of Matthew sixteen, I would think. And then he says the Biblion, or book, is further described by the phrase having been sealed with seven seals, which appears to be a merging, now watch, of Daniel 12, verse 1, <laughs> 4, 
and 9 with Isaiah 29 and verse 11. Amen. Now, now, if we look at Daniel 12, verse 1, where Michael stands up in defense of the people of God in the time of their affliction, that is clearly Matthew 24. And what did we say Calvin said about Matthew 24 before? Right. Yeah. So that's Matthew 24. Daniel um, 12 and verse 4 is the time of the end. Mm-hmm. And Daniel 9. Uh, go ahead and just re- recap you. So we have these Old Testament echoes that scholars are making. And and from what they end up saying, they're appealing to passages that partial predators say happened in AD 70. So this really isn't helping Sam's case at all. No, no, it's it's not. Um, it's not doesn't look have a very good outlook for um, the direction that he's taken on this. Now, the other thing that I think is important to um, call attention to on this passage is that in five nine, which was one of the points. Of course, you know he mentioned that um, uh, he wanted to parallel that with Daniel chapter seven. We've pointed out in previous uh, discussions that Daniel seven thirteen and fourteen, and even Daniel. 7, 9, and following all the way to the end of the chapter, according to the interpretation of the angel, has to do with the coming in vindication of the saints, coming to deliver the saints, and then to vindicate them by rewarding them with the kingdom and destroying uh, the um, little horn or the man of sin, which I take to be Old Covenant Israel, who was doing the persecuting against the saints. And so that is a context of judgment as well, and we can see that these scholars seem to be uh, agreeing with that, in, in, at least in principle, in terms of the way that they are assigning uh, Revelation chapter 5. But here's another point. In Revelation 5 and verse 9, we have the fact that the saints sing a song of victory, and uh, they also state that the content of this new song is expressed in chapter 5, 9, and 10, and in the Old Testament, the new song was always an expression of praise for God's victory over the enemy, which sometime included thanksgiving for his work of creation. And they give some references from the Psalms, and I, you know, I won't read any more of that, but just simply allow them, uh, the, the listeners, to go back and do some of the research to, uh, to look at this. And um, in verse 10, they say the prophesied kingdom of the saints of Israel in Daniel 7:22b, 27a may stand behind the idea of ruling in 5 and verse 10. So the, the point being made there is that there is definitely scholarly evidence that points this to uh, a, a judgment context. Now let's talk about this. To, uh, now we, to just to, just to verify that that's a consummation. Uh, to the kingdom. It's not an inauguration um, when you look at Daniel 7, which they're connecting it to. Anyway, go ahead. That is correct. That is correct. And so in uh, this statement where it says they sang a new song, so if this is a song that they're singing that relates to victory over an enemy, you know, if you go back to Exodus 15, you can see as Israel had gained their victory over Pharaoh and his army, where they sing this song of victory. Um, you see the same thing in First Samuel. But also, uh, as he's stating here, 
he's saying, you have redeemed us to God by your blood. This is verse 9. I'm just quoting part of the text. Out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. And so in this context where he talks about the, the song, when you compare this to other texts in Revelation, for example, let's, let's take a look at Revelation chapter um, 14. It says, Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters and like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing with their harps. And they sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. Well, that's the same company that we find in Revelation chapter 5, the elders. And he says, and no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. Now, uh, Dunn Preston and I did some studies on Zion, uh, some very extended studies on Zion, and one of the things that we pointed out was the correlation between Revelation chapter 14 and Hebrews chapter 12, where the text says, but you have not come to the mount that might be touched and burned with fire and blackness and tempest, etc., but you have come to Mount Zion and to the heavenly city, to the new Jerusalem, etc., but one of the things that it mentioned was that they had come to this festive gathering as well. And so it was a, it's a text that was about the Feast of Tabernacles in terms of the consummation of, the, um, of, of those festivals that were related to the end time. So once again, here is Revelation 5 being connected with this context that Paul, again, as you mentioned before, connects with a consummation text in Hebrews. There is clearly, in Hebrews chapter 12, the shaking of the old heaven and earth. So there's heaven and earth being destroyed. Is it the end of the material world? No. Is it the end of time? No. But it is the end of the old covenant world of Israel, and that's very clearly portrayed. It's a recalling of the Exodus scenes, not only in Hebrews, but also here in Revelation. Uh, That's uh, being spoken of here. And so this, this Exodus motif is very clearly portrayed in chapter 5. And then, of course, in chapter uh, 15, you have, again, uh, the, the statement that talks about them having victory over the beast, over the image, over the mark, and the number of his name. This is 15 in verse 2. And then in 3, notice again, they sing the song of Moses the servant of God, and the uh, song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints, who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name. For you alone are holy, for all the nations shall come and worship before you. Now watch. For your judgments have been manifested. So this, these songs that are being uh, sung in the book of Revelation by the saints, are songs of victory that demonstrate the consummation that God has brought about with the saints through uh, through Christ. Now, in verse 11 of Revelation 5, he talks about the innumerable assembly. You know that that is a connection between Daniel 7, which you know we agree there's a connection, but mm-hmm. our point is the connection is the consummation, not an initiation or an inaugural. 
And then, of course, you have this universal confession in 513. So I want to I come in on that, and I'm going to you know, turn it back over to you, uh, Michael, unless you have something else to ask of me. But um, in verse 13, it says, And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Now, this is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And the specific prophecy that was involved was Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 23, which is quoted several times in the New Testament. And one of the things that is mentioned according to that text was the fact that every knee would bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. Um, and so, you know, he says in, in Isaiah 45, 23, he says, I have sworn by myself the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall take an oath, and he shall say, Surely in the Lord I have righteousness and strength. To him men shall come, and all shall be ashamed who are incensed against him. Well, this concept of being ashamed is a judgment context. It's mentioned in uh, Matthew 10:32. It's also mentioned in Revelation chapter 3, I believe it is, chapter 2 or 3. But this concept of being ashamed and being confessed before the Lord. Well, every context that quotes Isaiah 45:23 specifically in the New Testament, for example, Revelation, I mean, excuse me, Romans chapter 14, 10 through 12 is a judgment context. First, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10, we shall all appear before the judgment seat, is a judgment context. It quotes part of the text. Uh, chapter four, Romans 14, 10 through 12 quotes more of the text because it says every tongue shall confess. Well, you have the same context in Philippians chapter 2 where Christ is, his name is above every name and every knee must bow and every tongue must confess. Well, that is the context of Revelation chapter 5. The scholars say that. Uh, Robertson's commentary point that out, that the correlations are between Revelation 5 and Philippians 2, but all of that goes back to Isaiah 45, which is a clear judgment context. So on every point that was mentioned to suggest this was maybe an inaugural or something ongoing, uh, the scholars say it's a consummative context that it refers to the, to the beginning. Amen. So let me, uh, let me recap and, and see if I understand what you're saying. Um, sure, we've got no problem, Sam, you know, understanding Revelation 5 in relation to Daniel 7 or even Daniel 12, uh, but since Sam gets it wrong in Daniel 7, he doesn't get it right in Matthew 16, 27, 28, and he definitely doesn't get it right in, Re in Revelation 5. Um, you mentioned you know, the angel's commentary on what Daniel says in Daniel 7, but also the uh, Old Greek Septuagint renders that Christ comes as the Ancient of Days, in Daniel 7:13, he doesn't come up to the Ancient of Days, um, mm -hmm. and and of course we've discussed um, you know Revelation 1:7, uh, where he comes and every eye sees him, and and no one takes that as the ascension coming, but yet you know they also go to Daniel 7:13 for that, and you know you pull up these Old Testament echoes of Revelation 5, and you've pointed out that this is not just inaugural 
language. It's consummation language, not only in the Old Testament, when we see these passages developed, but within Revelation itself, as we examine Revelation 5 in the context of, of the rest of the book, we don't just see an imminent inauguration, we see an imminent consummation. And so for Sam, and this is consistent with partial preterism, is that they always want to develop this uh, you know, imminent inauguration, but within passages, uh, but they, they fail to neglect that they, there's an imminent consummation as well. Uh, and you've done that beautifully uh, in the Old Testament, William, and also developing the book of Revelation itself. Um, well, you know, William, he comes uh, – no one disagrees that Christ has already ascended uh, when we approach Revelation 5 because Revelation one nineteen tells us it's about things which are in the past, things which were in the present, and things which were about to be fulfilled. So Christ has already ascended, granted – but when he comes, when he's on the throne and he takes the scroll and he begins to open the seals, that's not AD 30. That's between eight. That's between AD 66 and AD 70 when Christ mm -hmm. is taking that and he's opening. Now he's coming in judgment and rewarding. And I think Sam just miserably fails. To see that not only in Revelation five, but how it's developed throughout the book of Revelation. Yeah, there's there's no doubt, you know. And again, as we were pointing out with the um, testimony of you know the scholars connecting the opening of the seals to the time of the consummation, the imminent consummation. By the way, as you point out, um, these were things which were shortly to come to pass, and the time had drawn near for them. So that says that the consummation was indeed at hand, and that's one of the reasons why uh, John was told, do not seal the sayings of this book, because the time has drawn near, the time is near for these things to be done, uh, to be completed. So the consummation was, uh, was near, and uh, I just think this just is another example, Michael, of when what I call sophistry. Um, and you know some of these arguments that are done, and you know you you try to um, give every um, credible um, motive, you know, to doing so, you know. But uh, it it you you can't ignore some some of these things are just so so direct, so in obvious, your face, yeah. so obvious, so in your face that you have to do some maneuvering. To get around them, hmm. you have to do some um, some very um, uh, just skillful maneuvering to get around the clarity of some of these passages. And you know, anyone I would think that is going to approach Revelation five and read some of the things that are here and, and understand those um, the relationship of those covenantal judgments with Israel and and how they connect with the Second Exodus theme. Which, which, by the way, is to me one of the most powerful themes in the New Testament, um, the second Exodus concept, that just really pulls things into parallel because, you know, you've got just beautiful time frames and events and everything that took place during the Exodus and the, the destination and journey of 40 years that falls in line so beautifully with what we have in the, uh, in the second Exodus. Hey man, you know it'd be great if uh, I know you wrote an article uh, refuting Sam's uh, brief little article, and you did a great job. Um, and I know you 
it's got so much on your plate. But if you ever get a get time um, to develop what you said here in Revelation five, as far as the Old Testament echoes, what the commentaries and scholars are saying, and and how Revelation five is developed throughout uh, the rest of the book, uh, man, that would be just icing on the cake. Um, lastly. Uh, and Sam ends the article, and we only have about a minute left, so this is uh, probably won't take more than a minute to address. Sam closes his article by saying this. Always be ready. Keep your wicks trimmed and oil in your lamps, lest he come and remove his candle. Now, of course, this is taken, William, from uh, Matthew what, 24, 25, the parable of the virgins. Mm-hmm. And uh, interesting that he is applying this to the future, number one. And number two, he's he's applying this as an imminent passage for us, as an exhortation for us right now, that this is something that could happen uh, pretty much any time. And yet Sam's own publisher, Gary DeMar, American Vision, Joel McDermott, uh, these men take this passage as already being fulfilled in eighty seventy. Uh, number one, and number two, I think this exposes Sam's uh, either being rusty or just being a novice in uh, partial preterist postmillennialism because uh, William, not only has this passage already been fulfilled mostly within partial preterism, but it uh, it's, it's addressing it, – it can't be something that's imminent within postmillennialism because within postmillennialism – the signs that are left uh, before the real second coming happens is that we're supposedly going to live literally long ages. They take uh, Isaiah 65, uh, you know, we live in as long as trees and so forth, so forth, literally. So we're supposed to be progressively seeing man's ages living to, you know, 200, 300, 500, up to 900 years old, number one. Uh, before the second coming takes place. Number two, we're supposed to be seeing, William, in this progressive manifestation of the kingdom, glorification of the kingdom, before Christ comes, we're supposed to be seeing actual uh, lions beginning to revert, uh, carnivores reverting back to herbivores. We're supposed to be seeing lions uh, eating straw with the ox. And Sam would say that, uh, well, if you ever go to a circus and you see lions being tamed, well, this is evidence that Isaiah 65 is uh, (laughs) progressively being fulfilled and that uh, pretty soon we're going to be seeing this, Uh, you know, them wanting to eat straw instead of, uh, you know, meat. Uh, Interesting. Um, And then, of course, uh, the nations need to be converted. Uh, There needs to be a global conversion to Christ and there's not to be any literal war, William. And so these are the signs that are supposed to take place before any kind of imminent coming can take place. So the way, even the way Sam ends his article is just, you know, Sam, do you even know what your postmillennialism teaches? It, it's uh, or even your American Vision publisher teaches on the text you conclude with. It's uh, it was rather bizarre. Yeah, I, I think that's very interesting. I, I would be interesting to, interested to know what view is taken on a text like Matthew 22, which mentions the wedding um, that takes place after the burning of the city, 
And if that is the case, and Matthew 25 is future, then what's the wedding there? And does yeah, how, Christ have a... how, how many weddings, again, yeah, uh, yeah, how many weddings do we have with impartial preterism? Uh, we know we've got two comings, we've got two judgments, we've got two resurrections of the dead and so forth. Uh, so now have they, have they quote-unquote, progressed to having two weddings? Yeah, <laughs> there's just no end to it um, in terms of uh, what kind of uh, contradictions that are going to come up and what types of doctrines will have to be taught uh, in order to refute this. Um, you know, seemingly to me, it would be easier to just uh, acquiesce and and say, hey, there's there's just no answer to it, and that's that's kind of what we've decided. <laughs> you know, we we fought it for a while and looked for ways to refute it, and uh, and we, you know we still do investigate even the things that they say. We investigate them and see if they have any merit, see if they can stand up. But if it means that I've got to assign two wives to Christ um, at the end time, two separate end times, you know, uh, destruction of the city here, and if if the uh, concept goes as they generally say in revelation 20 that all of that's future then you got another city to deal with in revelation so it's it just is too bizarre for me to uh, wrap my mind around michael so i'm going to stop here and let you take it from there well amen uh and folks uh, again you've been listening to a series that we've been doing on the quote-unquote the big three matthew 10 uh, verses 22 and 23 uh, basically the coming of the son of man passages and matthew 16 27 and 28 and then next week we will begin the third and that is of course matthew 24 verse 34 uh but we're also going to give an exegesis of the entire all of it discourse uh just to be fair and to treat that properly uh, again you've been listening to the living body program uh william bell is my guest and i am so thankful william to have you on the show and you did such an excellent job of developing Revelation chapter 5, uh, dealing with the Old Testament echoes, how it's developed in the New Testament, and also within the book of Revelation itself. Uh, it's indisputable. It's, it was great exegesis, and I always enjoy it. Um, thank you so much for being on the show, and I look forward to having you on next week. Thank you. It was my pleasure, Michael. All right. Well, amen, brother, and I'll see you next week. Thanks again, guys, for listening. All right. Good night, everyone. For the past hour, you've been listening to the Living Body Broadcast with Michael Sullivan, David Green, and Michael Bennett. I'm William Bell with Fulfill Radio, a voice you can trust.